I had lost all fight before they picked up the stones, more exposed there clothed than I ever had been naked. Seeing the hatred in their eyes, I knew they were somehow stoning something in their selves. Easier to call me an adulteress than to see me as a woman seeking some comfort the only way that she knew, when life had crushed all dreams and hopes. And then I saw him, such difference in his eyes. Understanding was there, though no excuses. Seeing past the shame and regret to what I could have been and could be still. Friends, that poem, The Woman Caught in Adultery, written by our friend, uh, Reverend Jeannie Kendall, and reflecting on our passage from John's Gospel today. Let's pray together. And so gracious God, in these moments, may the words of my mouth and the reflections of our hearts and minds together today be found pleasing in your sight, O God, our Rock and our Redeemer. Amen. Two women were brought before the young king. They were prostitutes and they shared a house. Both had given birth, but the son of one of them had died. Now both were claiming that the living son was theirs. How could anyone tell who was speaking the truth? These are pre-DNA testing days. The king gave his judgment. Bring a sword, he said. Cut the boy in two. Each woman can have half. The instant reaction of both women told the truth. One of them agreed with the verdict. The other one begged that the boy should live, even if her rival was allowed to keep him. No question which one was the boy's mother. It was this kind of thing that gained King Solomon a reputation for wisdom. And this is the kind of story people in the first century would think of when they heard this story about Jesus from John's Gospel. The woman taken in adultery and the men taken in, well, hypocrisy. This is a bit of a puzzle in this part of John's Gospel. And it's a place, its place here is something that sometimes is disputed. In your Bible, you might find this reading in italics or something like that. You see, some of the earliest manuscripts of the gospel run from chapter 7, verse 52, straight to what we know as chapter 8, verse 12, missing out this story altogether. Or they put it in a different place, perhaps at the end of the gospel. Some even suggest that it actually belongs in Luke's Gospel, and it very much has a feel of Luke about it, so I can understand that. At the same time, though, I think there's something rather important about reading it where it is. John 7, before we get to our reading, has Jesus teaching in the temple during a festival called Tabernacles, and the crowds and authorities are getting interested in who he is and what he's about. John 8 has a slightly darker tone to it with Jesus accusing some of the Jewish people of willfully misunderstanding him, failing to grasp what he's saying and wanting to kill him. John 8 actually records some of the harshest things Jesus has ever recorded as having said. So what happens in between those two moments? I think this reading this morning could well be it. It's as though Jesus comes face to face with the real problem he's facing which is the attitude that people have towards him, also towards God, themselves, and their sense of vocation about being a nation that has been blessed and is tasked with sharing God's love and light with the world. 
We're not able to really understand all the dynamics at play here if we think those people are merely being bystanders trying to make sense of this curious teacher called Jesus. If we read it like that, then I think Jesus comes across as irrationally angry and dismissive. But this chapter does indeed fit so well with this change of mood in the gospel, which is brought about and, uh, by something that's caught Jesus' attention. Jesus is realising just how devastatingly unlike God's pattern of thinking, God's people actually were. So whether or not the story of the woman and her accusers originally belongs here, it certainly helps us to understand the chapter it introduces. The chapter begins with people wanting to stone a woman to death and ends with them wanting to stone Jesus. This is all a classic example of Jesus' own wisdom, the sort of wisdom that kings were expected to display, and it turns on the trap that the Pharisees had set for Jesus. They suspected he would want to tell the woman that her sins were forgiven, but ah, that would mean he would go on telling people to ignore the law of Moses. We've got him, he's trapped. They are quite simply using this woman. However guilty she might be of doing something she shouldn't have done, they're using her simply as a tool in their attack on Jesus. And in doing so, they are enjoying their sense of moral superiority over her, as well as their sense of having put Jesus in a corner that he can't easily escape from. They push this woman out into the middle of the crowd, people jeering and shouting. She knows that death is only a few moments away. Now, I don't want to necessarily dwell on this today, but where on earth is the man that she's supposed to be caught in adultery with in this story? Since when did God's law, or indeed any law, only apply to women? I suspect since the men became the ones who made the decisions about what is right and what is wrong. But surely there can't be a better example of how they'd so completely missed the point of the law passed down from Moses than this one. Jesus isn't tempted to argue with them, but they're waiting to see what he will say. If all goes well, they can stone the woman and they can stone Jesus too. It's hard to conceive of that being a success as it would have been for them. Jesus pauses though. He bends down and we're told he begins writing in the dust with his finger. Nobody knows what Jesus was writing in the ground, although we do know that teachers at the time would often draw things in the dust. This was days, don't forget, before chalkboards and overhead projectors, never mind interactive whiteboards and tablets. It might have been that he was writing a list of their sins, including hypocrisy. Perhaps he was just writing the word hypocrisy in large letters. Maybe he was making a point about the sin of the eye and the heart, like in Matthew 5. Or maybe, just maybe, he wasn't writing anything meaningful at all and was just doodling in the dust and treating their questions with the contempt that they deserve. They keep questioning him though, anxious to see what he will say, prodding him to get a reaction. So then he stops writing in the dust, stands up straight and speaks to them. Now it's a risky response that Jesus offers here. Suppose one of the men had the arrogance to go ahead. Jesus tells them, let the one here 
who is without sin be the first to throw a stone? He doesn't say the law of Moses is wrong, only that if we're to get serious about it, we should all find ourselves guilty. And so one by one, they drift away. Now, this story doesn't mean that adultery doesn't matter. That's not the point at all. Jesus' last words to the woman are extremely important. If she has been forgiven and rescued from imminent death, she must now live by that forgiveness. See, forgiveness isn't the same thing as tolerance. Being forgiven doesn't mean that sin doesn't matter. On the contrary, forgiveness means that sin does matter, but that God is choosing to set it aside. The sin that matters even more, as the rest of the chapter makes clear, is the deep-rooted sin which used the God-given law as making ourselves out to be righteous, when in fact it's meant to shine light on God's judgment and meant to show us something about who God is. And too often, we as the church, we often like to think this is something that happened then and doesn't happen now, but that just isn't true. We speak condemnation and shout with confidence about what other people are doing wrong, when really it is humility that is required. Hypocrisy is alive and well amongst Christians, just as it was amongst God's people in Jesus' day. We all screw up. We're a community of people who are aware that we make mistakes and that there is more to life than whatever we come up with. We know that there is forgiveness and there is freedom and hope and wisdom in being a disciple of Jesus Christ. Yet we strive to be all we can before God, but we fall short. See, friends, our churches have got to be places where people can sin, because we do. Our hearts have got to be hearts that always try to resist getting on our high horse, because we're probably no better than the people we're looking down on. Our words and actions need to be words and actions that help people grow through and beyond their mistakes, rather than forcing them to wallow in them. Our life together must always be characterised by forgiveness. You see, by confronting the sin of self-righteousness in the hearts of those around him, Jesus put himself quite literally in the firing line from which he's just rescued this woman. John is saying that this is part of what it means to be God's lamb, the one who takes away the sins of the world. You see, it's this Jesus that we've been called to follow, the one who stood in the way of the stones. And if we're to truly be his disciples, there is no place for us to stand idly by in situations of injustice and violence. And friends, I want to suggest this morning that not having a stone in our hand is not enough. Not being the one hurting others is not enough. Our task is to be people who prize and model and work for and actively seek reconciliation, who look to tackle injustice and prejudice. It's the difference between being non-racist and being anti-racist, the difference between not being bad and actively working for good. As Desmond Tutu has said, if you are neutral in situations of injustice, then you have chosen the side of the oppressor. If an elephant has its foot on the tail of a mouse and you say that you are neutral, 
the mouse will not appreciate your neutrality. Your friends, there are times, situations, globally and politically, but also in our offices and our homes and our schools, where being a disciple of Jesus Christ means we have to do something. There will be times when we need to stand with the oppressed and the judged, even if it means we find ourselves in the firing line. There are times when we are challenged to bear some of that pain. How much did it cost Jesus to bear the pain for all that we had done wrong? Now, how do we do that? How do we develop good habits and seek to avoid hypocrisy? How do we make forgiveness and reconciliation the goal? How do we stand in front of the stones? Well, we must wait on God and trust that God will strengthen us, but we must step out and take action, trusting that God will provide what we need and that God is more than capable of walking the road with us. See, here in this bit of John's Gospel is so much of the good news in a nutshell. It's freedom from death, forgiveness. It's about seeking justice and standing with the oppressed. It's all here in these few verses. Friends, may Jesus' example go before us and inspire us. And may we yearn for hearts after his own. Amen. Amen.